Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced here in Sydney, Australia. My name's Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today, in episode number 63, I speak to a couple other blokes called Matt, both from the UK, as it turns out. Matthew Vecchelodi is the guitarist in the massive band Def Havana. They've just released a fantastic new album, All These Countless Nights, and as I speak, they are touring Australia, opening up for Placebo, and they're going to headline a couple of their own shows as well, which is great. We talk about touring life, recording, crafting fantastic guitar tones in these anthemic songs, and much more. We only had about 20 minutes with Max. He had a really packed press schedule, but we we fit in a lot of guitar and band talk, which was really fun. We'll then move on to an interview with Matt Nine. Matt is a product manager of Boss Europe and was involved in such amazing new products as the Boss MS3. We talked through that, plus celebrating over 40 years of Boss. In fact, 40 years exactly of Boss compact pedals this year, so it's a really exciting year. We also get a bit more about Matt's background and I'll have a quick chat about The Guitar Nerds, which is a podcast that Matt co-hosts. It's a really great show. All right, we're going to get stuck right into it. What we're going to hear now is a little bit of Matt Vetgalodi's fantastic guitar playing in the band Def Havana. This is a track called Fever, and then we move into our conversation with him. Check it out. Mate, thank you so much for your time. Really, really great to speak with you. We are very excited in Australia that you'll be touring here again in uh, later in 2017. I think you guys were last here in 2013, I believe. We, I think you would have been doing that tour as well by then. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that would have been the last time we were in Oz. Yeah, that would that was just on Soundwave. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, cool, awesome. So this time you're out opening for Placebo, your fellow UK. Um, band and, and uh, really cool to see you've got some of your own dates as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, can't wait. Brilliant. Now you guys are um, you guys have had a huge year. Also, the last twelve months have been have been massive. You've released um, your fourth album, All These Countless Nights, which has um, which has done fantastically well. Um, I'm interested in talking to you about the the writing and recording process. Now, just to back up a little bit, Matt, you joined the band. Am I right? Around 2012, is that correct? Um. Yes, yeah, that's actually exactly right, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool, so Def Havana formed in uh, 2005, so they were already um, a well-oiled machine, which you were yeah, intimately acquainted with, of course. Um, so you, yeah. when you record a new album, can you talk me through the process a little bit then? So for the recent album, uh, do you guys jam out songs? Are songs brought in fully written? What's, what's the process there? Okay. Uh, well, with us, um, my brother James, our singer, he, he'll write like the majority of the song, yep. like and demo it on his iPad. Like he'll have a rough version of it, so we all have an idea. And with um, and normally what we've done on previous records was um, we wouldn't have a lot of time between having like 
say, just enough songs to go on a record yeah. and then going straight into the studio and doing them. So the songs never had like much time to develop. But this time, um, we actually did have like a long time to really think about the songs, and we had a lot more songs to choose from as well. Okay. And so we spent a we spent like a week with a producer just jamming the songs out until we got so bored of them <laughs> and got them absolutely right. Yeah. And then um, then we did that so that we could then go into another studio and record most of the records as a live band to get that sort of energy in there and that was amazing for us to do because that's something we've always wanted to do but I've just never like had the as I was saying before the time to really work on it okay. and, so, and so that's how we did that and then obviously on top of that we then went to a smaller studio to then do like say a couple of guitar overdubs and do vocals at the end mm-hmm. but it was a it was actually quite a communal experience this time and it can be the opposite if you just did it as like from the drums up I guess yes yeah 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 so, Cool. That's cool. Oh, that's interesting. So that's the first time as a band you've you kind of sat in a room um, for the actual tracking. Yeah, the well, tracking. properly. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. What What do you think that brings to the um, to the experience? Um, it just makes it feel more together, I think, and it it gives it a lot more energy because, and I think for all of us as well, we we do play better when we're all playing together, like. At, as a band and then the other thing it does is say our producer if he realized we were playing to a different tempo than what we had a tempo track at but it felt like the groove felt better then he would just wind that in so there's some there's some tracks that don't have a consistent tempo all the way through because he just preferred the like the vibe that we were getting from one another so just just little things like that i think it gives a record more character and it's it's more um i don't know it's more artistically gratifying for all of us in the band to go back and listen to it, I think. Yeah, cool. When, when I hear a track like Fever, there's those um, there's massive layers of feedback at the, the front and end of the track. Um, yeah. You're obviously standing next to an amp or something for that. Yeah. Um, that, that was actually, um, weirdly, um, that feedback was, um, we got that from a, it was an Ampeg um, bass. Oh, okay. Um, like that, it, it's the one that the guy from Death from Above 1979 uses, so it's really high game. Uh-huh. But it just gets the most brutal sounding feedback. So, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's massive. It's so cool. Um, on top of the distorted bass part yeah. as well, it's it's a pretty chunky track. That's great. Yeah. Nice. So with, awesome. the, with the guitar parts, how, how formed are they? I guess, are they formed in that sort of pre-production jam that you guys are doing with your producer, picking out the songs? Yeah, there's a lot of yeah for the most on. part. Cool. Yeah, yeah, for the most part, all the, they're all done there. But then um, we did spend a lot of time, me and our producer, just for, for a, a couple of the a couple of the tracks, really just working and working at like getting it absolutely perfect. Uh-huh. But then there were other ones which were like would have been first takes or completely out of the live sessions. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. So, cool. so it was an interesting way to do it. Nice. Yeah, the, the parts sound great. Like the solo on Fever is is awesome. It's like perfect for that tune. Um, listening to Sing, the yeah, yeah. the little counter melodies bef- behind that big anthemic chorus are, are great. They're cool parts. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Nice. Awesome. What um what gear are you using? I I've seen you I I've seen you a lot playing a blue Strat, but recently I've seen pictures of you with a Les Paul. What's what was your um what were you using for the album? Um, the record um. I, I did use um, a strap for a lot of the lead lines. Mm-hmm. It was a like 
an old 70s one that um, a friend of ours had and lent us. And it's it's the heaviest Strat I've ever felt <laughs> like picked up to play. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it was a, it was from a period where they used to like over over wire the pickups, and so it comes out incredibly hot. Great. And so it, it and because it's so much meatier for some reason, it just rips a bit more than a lot of other Strat. Yeah, cool. But um, so that's what I used for a fair bit of it. And we also had a '68 Jazzmaster that we nice. used. And so for a lot of the really dirty sounding leads, that was what we ran through. Like we ran it through a, an old Silvertone head as well. Awesome. Um, so a lot of it was that sort of thing. But yeah, recently live, I've been using a um, a Les Paul because it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big jump in fatness. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. What about um? What about pedals? What do you, do you have run much of a pedal board? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's, uh, this is like the first time I've I've never been that uh, like concerned with pedals until we recorded this record and okay. our producer brought in this huge, huge like trunk that was just full of distortion pedals. And awesome. I was like, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and so like yeah, we, I mean. I've, I've got a couple of different octave pedals that I use. I've got um, I use a little tiny pog to get a, for the pokier lead lines. Okay. Yeah. And then I have um, and I've got one a really horrible sounding octave actually. It's an electro harmonics octave multiplexer. Uh huh. It's like yep. the cheapest one you can get, but it makes it sound like a synth because it's um, it's monophonic, so it really glitches if you hold yeah, a note too long, nice. which is cool. That's cool. That's uh, fun. Yeah, and then I've got um. Yeah, oh, mate, I love that sort of thing because you can never play the same thing twice because it just sounds totally different. And I've got um, use a little nano muff as well, actually, which okay. is pretty cool. But other than that, it's just boring delay pedals that I've got. Yeah. I've got haven't got an exciting one like a Strymon or something. But, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listening to the album tracks, the guitars are they're massive. Um, they're not they're not over processed at all. They I think that's part of the um, part of the charm of of this record. The guitars are. Um, really raw and and ripping so that's cool yeah thank you yeah that's that's something that our producer really wanted as well yeah right cool. and we did as well like we're a bit there's so many bands where the guitars are so well produced you can just i mean sure to a point it sounds great to listen to it through a great stereo system but it's too clean a lot uh -huh. of the time yeah and then there's not a, a lot of variation when they're often when a record has really well produced guitars it's often like well that's the guitar tone and that's the way it goes yeah like, sure got the rest of the record whereas like on on our record I, well, maybe it's just because i was there whilst i was recording it like but for me the guitar sounds are different it is slightly different on every single song because there was a different purpose and mm. we yeah it wasn't overproduced that was something we really wanted to do yeah cool yeah I, I dig that i do i do did pick up the different tones and things something like sing um that guitar in the intro and in the breakdown that's super flabby and Sounds like some kind of fuzz that's just yeah, about man. to explode or something. Do you remember what what you yeah, used for man. that? Yeah, we, we just ran we ran it through um, a JHS pedal straight into the desk. Oh, and serious? Yeah, through awesome. two different guitars. Just double just double tracked it and tried to copy that like smashing pumpkin sound. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And just yeah, very cool, very very cool. So when you're when you're yeah. touring and you guys are like doing heaps of big festivals, um, you've done Glastonbury, which looked incredible. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, the big ones down here as well. We've, yeah, we mentioned Soundwave. What what do you take out? I, is there some sort of compromise about how much gear you can take? Do you take your own amps? What what happens there? Do you use backlight? Um, 
Well, in, in, in the UK, and anywhere we can drive to, we'll take our own like um, full back line. Yeah. But um, say, like, when we're coming to Australia, we're taking all our pedals and um, different guitars, and I think our drummer's taking some hardware, but the rest of it we're renting out there to spec that we've, like, um, forwarded, advanced. Okay, um, sure. Just because for a fly for a, for a fly shows, it just makes it so much cheaper. Yeah. And it's, it's just easier, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what's your, what's your, um, what amps do you, do you ask for in the riders? Um, I've, well, I always go for, um, um, orange, I think either a rock a hundred or a rock a 50. Okay, cool. At the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So you're taking out the Les Paul. Are you still taking a Strat as well? Do you, how many guitars would you take? Say for the Australian tour, how many guitars would you bring with you? Um, to Australia, we're taking like two each. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually going to take. Um, I don't think I'm taking a strap for this run. Okay, but um, which will be a first for me actually. Yeah. Right. Um, um, I think I'm taking a little. Well, I'm taking a like tele hybrid that a, a friend of ours made. That just I don't know. It sounds like a Telecaster some days, and then sounds like a meaty like Les Paul another day. Yeah. And so I'm taking that and a Les Paul, yeah. Cool. And then my brother's taking two Jazzmasters out. Okay. Nice. Which is wicked. That'll yeah. sound great. That sounds like a good combo. Um, listening to a track like yeah. Trigger, there's a lot of there's some Scar influence in there. I'm wondering for yourself, Matt, what who were your influences as a guitar player when you were developing? Um, as a guitar player, the, one of the main ones um, is John Frusciante from Chili Peppers. Uh huh. Awesome. Just the uh, just the taste in um, I don't know lead playing yeah. and space to leave in, but also being able to jam that was the main thing for me and my brother i think yeah. like just growing up being able to play together like that yeah um but as well as that i'm really um people like johnny marv really got to me as well just because i'd never never really thought that you could play guitar in that way it'd always been a bit more like solo-y and then realized oh i can make something sound really nice by just going up and down these weird little scales mm-hmm. and but, th- but then going forwards as well people like listening to just Josh Hahn play anything, that really blew my mind as well. Okay, yeah. It's because it's so different to how I'd approached like, playing a solo before as well. Okay. But that, that, people like that would probably be my three main. Yeah, awesome. The um, I remember seeing the Chili Peppers in 93, I think, and I was gutted because John Frischianti oh. had just left the band. He was they, um Yeah. I think he'd bailed out oh, in Japan, and I... They rescheduled. They had, I can't remember who they got out. It might have been Arik Marshall was in the band very briefly. And he was great. But I think um, some years later I saw them, I think it was around 2000, and, and John Frischganti was back in the band. And it was epic. Yeah, it was so yeah. cool. And the jamming was nuts. He and Flea right. just traded. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, they just had that. When, well, when, when they had him in the band, they were just um, a great band, like a great live band yeah, to watch. Yeah. Like they had that perfect pairing between bass, drums, and guitar, Absolutely. which is like... Something really rare. Yes. Now you guys are about to tour with Placebo, as we mentioned. Have you worked with those guys before? Yeah, we've done a few shows with them last year at the end, and then uh, one this year as well so far. So yeah, really looking forward to well, mainly just being able to see them every night as well. Yeah, cool. That'll be great. Yeah, they've been. I couldn't believe it. Twenty years. They've um they've been around a while. Yeah, yeah. It was shot on. <laughs> Very cool. Now, um, 
as I mentioned, like the last 12 months and, and probably longer has been pretty intense for you guys and obviously very fruitful. Um, so you're in Australia in September. Um, what, what happens yeah. after that tour? What's, what's the rest of your year look like? Well, so we're in Oz for a couple of weeks, yeah. I think, and then come back and our next proper run, we've got a few little festivals sort of things in the UK after that. And then um, we're doing another, like, a headline run in the UK in November and then going straight from that into Germany for a week or so afterwards. And then after that, we're pretty much done for the year other than trying to write some new music. Okay, yep. I was going to ask, is there, uh, is there much thought for a new album or are you just too much in the thick of it right now? No, yeah, we're, there's, that's definitely something we're, we're thinking about and trying to write some songs yeah. at the moment. Just because we, it took us a long time to get our last record out. And so we don't want to leave it that long. But obviously, if the songs aren't good enough, we're not going to rush it. But Yeah, sure. Yeah. Will, will any of the tracks that missed the last cut um, make a reappearance or will you guys start with a clean slate? Well, I, th- I think we'll aim to start with a clean slate. But if we get like a couple of songs along the, like down the road and we realise, oh, this one that we tried to fit on the record but didn't fit would fit really well here then um yeah i'm sure we'll be open to like giving it a go yeah cool all right that sounds awesome sounds really great so um i won't run through all the dates but i know you guys are here in september between the 4th and the 14th um with placebo and you've got two two headlining gigs here which is great so you're in melbourne and sydney so that's um definitely something to look forward to yeah it'll be amazing i can't wait especially excited to do our headline shows as yeah, well, like because cool. we've never done that over over in Australia before. So, yeah, that'd be amazing. Okay, excellent, fantastic. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Really cool to to speak to you. Uh, and, thanks for uh, having me, mate. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing you in uh, in about a month or so. All right, fella. Cheers. Have a good one. Cheers, buddy. Bye. All right, there you go, Matthew Vecchioli from Def Havana. Now there. Australian dates, they're supporting Placebo, as we mentioned. Their own headlining shows are Thursday the 7th of September in Melbourne and Wednesday the 13th of September in Sydney. So check out those shows. If you're in those areas, it should be fantastic. All right, let's move on to my conversation with Matt Knight. As I mentioned, Matt is very much involved in Boss products these days. And uh, it was great to get the lowdown on uh, some Boss action, as well as finding out a little bit more about Matt as well. Oh yeah, started our conversation by asking Matt what got him involved in guitars in the very, very first place. Um, it was a weird one because I was thinking about um, this sort of thing this morning before we came on and I was like, when did I first start playing? And it was confident, probably when I was about 15, 14, 15. I don't know if there was like a defining moment it, I remember a friend of mine, um, there used to be a small group of us and every Sunday we'd do the same thing. We'd go to my mate's house and we'd probably end up playing like PlayStation 2 or we were like massively into Warhammer when we were kids. Uh-huh. And then he had like a classical guitar and I, I think we just like hammering notes out on it. But then I suppose the, kind of the music I was listening to, he bought a guitar um, so there was four of us one of them bought a guitar one of them bought a bass and then I was like oh, I really want a guitar so I said to my parents I was like I really want to learn playing guitar and they were like really didn't want 
my my dad especially was like, I really don't want to buy you a guitar. <laughs> okay. And it's not because it's not because it's like you know the money or anything. He's just like, look, we bought a piano for you and your sister. I had two years of piano lessons and I can't play a single note. I think I can like knock out a C major chord and I can remember what the chord note the the notes are only from playing guitar. Yeah. Um, but sort of managed to convince them and um, I bought like a court. Didn't really know what I was buying, but went to this tiny little guitar store in my hometown. And um, then we used to, then Sundays moved from kind of like PlayStation and sort of like Warhammer to like playing guitar. So all four of us would end up going to my mate's house on a Sunday um, and we'd all just start playing. My mate bought a seven string Ibanez, which was probably like the most popular guitar at the time. Okay. Um, this is like 2000 and two two thousand two thousand one two thousand two yeah um and yeah it kind of just it kind of moved on from there we had a really great guitar shop um in my hometown at that time so before the days of the internet and uh, people doing online shopping there was obviously a you know a slightly more thriving store business that all advertised in guitar magazines so you saw the same shops pop up in magazines every single month yeah yeah and my one was always in there, and um, it was great. It was in a, a building from, uh, I think the building was about 600 years old. It was an old coach house from wow. the, the 1500s. Wow. Yeah. So it was like, it was amazing. It was uh, it had a basement, then four floors, like all kind of wooden rafters. It was absolutely packed. Uh, it was run by a really nice guy um, called Colin, who I got in touch with again recently um, to say, you know, I know I probably spent way too much time in that shop, but you'll be pleased to know that I'm basically <laughs> like really in the industry now. And it's all because I, I used to come to that shop and that's kind of what spurred it on. I went there every Saturday for probably, well, three years from this time I started playing guitar till the day that he decided to, uh, to close it really. And that, and that was always my kind of element for learning about new stuff. And okay. I think that's what spurred on my kind of passion for, more of the gear side of things than it even was the playing side of things um so i think if it kind of wasn't for that shop and my four mates getting together i don't think we would have ever kind of ended up where we are now really yeah that's cool what what kind of tunes were you guys playing god um at the time it was i mean i suppose the kind of people that got me into playing guitar were um radiohead um, at the time, mm-hmm. yeah. at the time, How to the Thief was only about to come out, and I think it came out not long after I started playing guitar. And Johnny Greenwood's guitar playing on that was kind of inspiring for me for the kind of effects side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of in 1998 to yeah 2001, I suppose, as well. There was much more now, or much more then rather, was kind of like music TV. So like Kerrang and like Scars and all those music channels. Okay, yeah. Chili Peppers were like my biggest band. So me and me and a, a few friends started a band, and we basically were a Red Hot Chili Peppers tribute band. We basically did like fifty percent covers of their stuff, and then like some other covers, and then like one tune of our own. Um, <laughs> and Rage Against the Machine, I suppose, was another one, especially for the effects side of things. Yeah, um, yeah. But kind of all that sort of new metal stuff that was popular at that time Limp Bizkit uh, Linkin Park Papa Roach like all those kind of bands all those sort of like slightly more riff heavy yeah um, kind of things were, were way more popular and then it sort of evolved from there but I feel now my kind of guitar tastes are like 
I still love that music, but the kind of playing that I'm listening to now is like so far away from that. Do you know what I mean? And it's like yeah, I kind sure. of wish that I'd been like I'd like opened my eyes slightly wider as a, as a player when I was uh, slightly younger. But I suppose you you get what you're into, and that's kind of what spurs your passion on, really. Yeah, I think so for sure. I think yeah, your taste change, and even you know, even in terms of gear, your idea of what a great tone is or how you go about it—that's that, always kind yeah. of shifting. Perhaps likewise. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I think it was then, it was just like simple, just like turn the distortion button on and it's just like, right, what riff has distortion? And then kind of just, <laughs> what what can I tune down to drop D and then go from there, basically? Yeah, that's cool. Oh, man, I, I can relate, bashing out yeah. rock and roll stuff, absolutely. You're um obviously involved with Boss now and you're a real pedal nut. Do you remember your first guitar pedal? Uh, yes, um, we've talked about this um, before, but it goes back to this this kind of this mythical shop. So when we first discovered it, um, a friend of mine was like, oh, there's a guitar shop in town. That's where I bought my guitar from. So went down there on a Saturday and it was kind of like, I don't know. It, and it's still, after so many years of working in a guitar store, um, I still do get that feeling of walk, when I walk into a new store, being like, oh, there's so much cool stuff to see. But I've seen so many, it's kind of like faded slightly over time. But uh-huh. I still remember the first time I walked in, I was like, that's oh, amazing. You know, I had loads of books and there was loads of cool pedals. Um, obviously, the brands were like sort of limited at that time, but I didn't know what any of them did. Um, but I, and I really wanted, I knew I was going to get a guitar and I was like, oh, you know, was walking in and uh, it was a Dan Electro Cool Cat chorus. Oh, and okay. I can't yep, remember yep. whether I tried it out or not. And so this is one of the old ones that used to run on two nine volt batteries. Yeah, big, yeah, the eighteen volter thing. Sounded great. Yeah. Um, really heavy. I, yeah. yeah, but I was just solid. like, I think I was, just, I was just like, I just want a guitar pedal, and that one looked cool. I think it was cheap uh-huh. at the time. It might have been secondhand. Um, but that was definitely one of the first, if not the first one I ever remember buying. Um, so that wasn't like a distortion pedal or anything. Yeah. Um, but then one of the the, the kind of suppose the things that maybe was like the definitive moment that kicked it off was they had loads of books and they had the boss book which was written around the time that i started playing guitar which was the history of of boss from 1977 to, to now oh, okay and all cool. the compacts and i remember buying that and it had a cd in the back of, and it demoed all of the um all of the pedals and i remember taking it home put it on my cd player listening to it reading the book from cover to cover and it was just kind of like that's it i just want to buy loads of guitar pedals i just I found them so interesting. Uh-huh. Um, and what I used to do is I used to have a Sunday job with um, my granddad at the time and we'd go and cut grass and he'd give me like five or 10 pounds. And I'd like basically go to the store and they'd let me like put it behind the counter and then pay a little bit off each week. So what I do is I just go in every week and put like a fiver or 10 pounds towards another guitar pedal. Um, and I think the one I remember doing it for the longest was probably a Boss BF3 flanger because I think at the time it was 90 pounds. Okay. So it yeah. took me like three months to pay that off, three or four months to pay that off. Um, but I used to do that all the time, just go in, what's new, um, kind of ask what's, you know, it's one of the things I remember the first time I plugged in a delay pedal. I didn't actually know what a delay pedal was. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the basement of this place with a couple of friends. We plugged it in. I think it was probably a Boss dd5 uh-huh. maybe even a dd3 and kind of going don't really get it i don't understand <laughs> what this is but i didn't really know anything there. i don't really know any riffs i didn't know any licks i was like, plugging it in going um but yeah it was just kind of that like intrigue into kind of what these boxes do for your guitar tone um 
but yeah, I think that Dan Electro was probably the probably the first. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's the one that I always remember being the first one that I kind of I kind of had. Yeah, cool. And and where did guitar playing and this this love for gear where did it take you from there? Um, so I suppose for me it was it was kind of always a hobby. It was a real hobby for a long time. And then it became became a bit more of a passion. And I worked in this. Um, I went to this store. Um, you know, every weekend for kind of three years knew the guys really well they were always super friendly we weren't one of those we weren't a group and i especially wasn't because and i suppose it paid off later down the line was never one to kind of like hassle the store like go in and try loads of stuff out with never the intention of buying it like yeah. i only really want to try something if i was like if it was really quiet and they were like do you want to plug something in or you know if i was looking to to buy something um so i went in there every day for three years and then one day i went in loads of stuff was on sale and the guy um, was like oh you know i've got some sort of like bad news and i was like oh you know what, what's up he's like oh, i've decided to close and i was like oh that sucks and he was like yeah look i've had enough doing paperwork you know it was fun like 20 years ago um and i think at that point guitar shops were like declining and like guitar was actually at like an all-time low there wasn't a lot of music apart from the kind of new metal stuff coming out that was kind of guitar heavy especially in the uk there's so much dance and like ibiza kind of music that there wasn't okay. any instruments in it so he decided to close and it closed for about two years and then or maybe a year and a half and then one day my phone friend phoned me and said guitar shops reopened i was like what and he's like yeah yeah opened like not on wednesday so first saturday day after uh, you know after a week of uh, school or whatever i went down introduced myself to the guy and um there was a few people coming in and out and you know i went the next weekend it was busier uh and i spent a lot of time talking to him people kept coming in but it was like because the building was so old it had this like old latch door which was really stiff one day it was so busy i just like held the door open for him and i opened it and greeted customers and at the end (laughs) of the day he gave me 20 quid and he was just like oh can you come back can you come back next saturday and that basically got me a job in this store oh, at the great. weekends. That's great. Um, and I'm still friends with that that guy now. And um, he and so I, I just started, you know, turning up on Saturdays. Um, you know, did the odd days here and there if he needed it because it was just him. And he'd basically moved down from London. He had a big job in a in a record company. Mm-hmm. Decided he'd had enough and wanted to do this, this guitar store. And um, he even we we were talking about it recently. He even decided that i'm not going to open at christmas because i got my family and it's just me and i was like oh i'll tell you what me and my mate will do it and i think this was like christmas eve or the 23rd of december and um yeah we basically like sat in this store and it was the biggest day that we'd ever had in that kind of eight months that we'd opened we did like five thousand pounds which was ridiculous at the time considering we didn't really have any guitars over maybe 600 quid okay at the time we didn't have a lot of pedals um but it was brilliant because i spent so much time there and he'd let me take stuff home he'd let me buy stuff you know cheap um he'd let me try stuff all day we'd sit there he'd teach me about guitar playing he'd teach me about different amps um and then i moved from there i moved to go to music college um which kind of didn't work out i realized i was never going to make any money actually being a musician um but i wanted to stay where i was which is in brighton handed in my cv to the local guitar shop and ended up getting a job there because i'd had previous experience um and then it kind of just it snowballed from there i ended up working there for eight or nine years worked my way up to the manager for a few years moved from there to um anderton's music in in guildford um and then 
you know, throughout that 10 years of working in music stores, I made such a network of connections of people that also worked in the industry that I ended up getting the job where I am now. And I think that's the crazy thing. And unless you're in the MI industry, you don't realize how kind of entwined it is. Everyone's worked for someone else or Mm -hmm. they've worked for other companies. You know, people move from one to the other, back again, and then they bring people with them, people leave. So you tend to find that, uh, and I found this at NAMM, this year is that you go and everyone knows everyone and uh it's actually a really small world the kind of like mi industry so that's kind of helped me along but just kind of having the passion for actually working in retail was um the kind of thing that that kept it going a lot of people can't don't like working in stores can't kind of handle how busy it gets sometimes um but for me it was always great to kind of sell someone something and if if it was a guitar it was even better because you know, I loved guitar playing. So if it wasn't for me going down on that Saturday, um, I probably would have never um, held the door open and never got that 20 quid and then never come back the following week. So it was kind of, it was kind of that really. It was just a friendly guy in a store, you know, handing me some money for helping him out. And yeah. it went on from there really. That's cool. I, I dig that kind of community vibe as well. Like a bunch of my guests, um, whether they've been, you know, musicians or involved in, in the, the, uh, the MI industry, um, yeah, so many of them have said, yeah, there was a, a local shop that encouraged me and taught me how to set up guitars or just hung out and showed me gear or, you know, showed me some riffs or something. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it was, it was just one of those things. I think it was, um, it was great. And, you know, unfortunately I was at college at the time, but when I left, uh, I did like full time in the summer and he had a guy working for him and he was like, look, I've got to get rid of him. He was, he was an amazing guitarist. He was a nice, he was a great dude. He was an amazing guitarist, but he was so into theory that he'd be like, I'd be like, right, let's have a jam. And the guy would be like, okay, cool. He's like, right. So I'm going to do it in E. And he went like, what E diminished flat seven into like, and he was like, no, just like E major. And then he was like, yeah, I'm really into like micro tonality scales at the moment. And, then, and my mate was like, look, I've just had enough. I just want to play like blues and E. Can you know, I'm just going to have to let him go. And can you just start coming in on a few days? Um, so yeah, it was, it was thanks to him really, but he obviously was well connected and then, you know, working in bigger stores. Yeah. And then once you, once I got to like a kind of manager level and, and me and Jay cross who I, who I do guitar notes with and Mark Packham and, and Joe, and we started to know people, they get to know people and yeah, it becomes this, this amazing community really. Uh, yeah, cool. and everyone's in it for life, you know, really like most people, if they're much older, have been doing it for such a long time as well. Um, so there's this huge sort of wealth of, of knowledge. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a great place to be if you really want to be involved in it um, and dive head first and, and kind of really give it your all. Um, there's there's a great community of people out there. Um, it's, yeah, it's brilliant. That's cool. In um in, in my hometown of Sydney, there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of the, the bricks and mortar stores have closed down. Some of the chains have come and gone, but there's a few stores left that have been around, I don't know, since the 80s when I was buying, when I first started buying stuff and... Um, the, the owners uh, are still in these places and, and all the yeah. musicians in Sydney know these guys on a first first name basis. You know, there's Stan at the Guitar Factory, there's Doug out at Sunburst, there, there's Rob at the Guitar Lounge and they've been around at Fervo yeah. and they're uh, well-regarded and well-known around the place. Yeah, I think the stores that have lasted um, have kind of been the stores that have maybe kind of moved with the times as well. I think a lot of stores that maybe got left behind tend to be the ones that sort of maybe shunned kind of 
a modern movement of kind of um, e-commerce purchasing yeah. and online purchasing and mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's nice to know that there's some stores. I, I did a, a tour of UK guitar stores recently um, with some Japanese colleagues, and you know, so many people that own these kind of legendary stores that we went to have been there since since day one. You know, and um, I think that's re- that's great because once again they've they've kind of seen everything, you know, all the technology and everything kind of move forward from there. Yeah, cool. Uh, which is why it's a shame places like Denmark Street, in a way, you know, I kind of I remember going there even you know 15 years ago, and now there's 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 barely anything left. And okay, was that part, the... part of shame? But stuff. Yeah, was that like the big guitar row in in London? I've heard that. Yeah, I've so... heard Denmark Street mentioned. Yeah, Denmark Street was, or, or like Tim Pan Alley was like kind of the legendary street in the kind of, um, I suppose, the start of the 60s. Um, so it was one street near Tottenham Court Road, um, near near Soho, but basically all the bottom stores were basically guitar stores or music stores. And, and in the basement grounds, it was generally all like music studios. And then in all the apartments above, it was kind of like producers, film producers, composers publishers okay um but it's kind of people once again i think because the way things in guitar start stores started moving forward uh, and going more online there's not a lot of space in those buildings for a start like storage space and it's not like a dedicated store that's maybe more of a destination you have to drive to sure. people start moving away rents became expensive and then unfortunately in the last kind of four or five years um they've decided to develop the, the station because it's a really big station in central london and a lot of those buildings have, ha- have had to go so a lot of those stores have kind of been forced out really um but they also didn't modernize or move with the times which i think has made it equally as difficult but i remember going there at one point you know when i not long after i started playing guitar and it was like wall-to-wall guitar stores mm-hmm. um I'd never seen anything like it until I went to Japan last year, and I was like, oh, "Okay, so guitar streets still exist somewhere out there." Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Now you you've been working for Boss for a while now. So um, as you said, you worked at uh, uh, GAC. Was GAC that store you mentioned that you're at for the eight yes, or so years? Yes, so GAC, uh, Guitar Amp and Keyboard Center in in Brighton. Yeah, was the the kind of the first store where I kind of learnt my craft, I suppose you could say. Yeah, cool. And you mentioned the Guitar Nerds podcast. That that came out of the GAC store, didn't it, originally? Yeah, um, it was Mark Packham's idea, which is the guy we do the podcast with. Yep. Um, I think he he basically decided to like leave working there full-time. He'd worked at the store full-time uh, when I started, and for a while we kind of worked together. And then he decided to go back to kind of university and um, like study something different and kind of um, do a course of something he'd always wanted to do. Um, So he kind of did um, kind of like this media course, which involved like radio broadcasting. And he got really into like podcasts were obviously becoming a really big thing at that time. Um, I mean, they've been big for a while, but it was kind of there were more people doing it. It was easier for people to do it and get it out. To, to the world uh, and there wasn't many guitar ones at the time I, I don't remember us having a massive amount of kind of I say competition but I mean a massive amount of other people doing a similar thing yeah sure and um, we just decided to do, a, to do a GAC one he decided to do it um, 
because he thought it'd be great for kind of business. Um, he came, finished uni, came back as a marketing guy. Um, so he started doing all the kind of GAC marketing. And um, yeah, we just sort of sat down run one day and kind of started recording. And, you know, I, I, I really want to go back and listen to that first one because I wonder how awkward you were for the first couple. Uh-huh. Um, but it was great. We used to finish um, work on, I think, like a Tuesday and we'd set up all the microphones and everything. We'd get food in we'd, and we'd talk about gear. And I remember not long after that and when it went on iTunes and at one point we were like top of the iTunes podcast chart for like games and hobbies for like two weeks. And we were like, oh, my God, awesome. this is amazing. It will never, we'll never top this. <laughs> and um, yeah, we did, ended up doing it for, for two years, so they had 100, 100 episodes. 100 episodes before mark decided to um to leave and that was kind of the end of era one um and then it was kind of the decision to kind of carry on without him which didn't really work Uh, and then not long after that point um i think we did four episodes um and then not a huge amount of time after that i i kind of got my job and um outside of working in um brighton because we all lived in the same town mm-hmm. and said you know i don't know if it's going to work as a gack podcast because i'm not going to work for, for gack anymore so then became the decision to do guitar nerds uh and it was quite easy for us to kind of grab all the people that have been listening to the gack one and kind of say oh we're still doing it but now we're non-store affiliated so we can kind of talk about whatever we want yeah that's um cool. and it sort of snowballed from there really um it's become like a kind of crazy it's, it's it's made like a kind of beginning of a crazy adventure really over the last kind of two years but yeah four years in total um nearly every week talking about guitars it's it's been and it's now for me being outside of guitar stores it's been great to kind of keep up to date with what else is going on yeah cool yeah i love the show it's it's really cool and for a lot of the i mean there's there's quite a few gear shows out there but to have a panel of four guys and, and you're obviously good mates it's um it's a lot of fun as well yeah, I think um, there's been, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, you're tired and you're like, oh, I'm not really feeling this, but it's always good to kind of, um, because I live in, in London, the rest of the guys live in Brighton, it's always good to kind of speak to the same four people every week and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, put put this kind of massive body of work out there. Um, and I think kind of just for, for future, it's amazing to think that, you know, you could potentially listen back to 100 hours, you know, of kind of like yeah, us yeah. kind of thing about guitars it's yeah it's kind of like a nice thing for you think when i'm in like my 70s 80s or whatever you think, <laughs> oh yeah i did this podcast for ages or i might even still be doing it you never know but yeah. it's um it's great and i think um what i really like about it is that i've always kind of thought well i'm never gonna wow the world with my guitar playing i'm not gonna be a famous musician but i've always like loved helping people with guitar tones or kind of pedals or purchases or you know so to know that my podcast that i'm involved in like helps people make a decision that might change the way they play guitar for the rest of their life is kind of that that gives me a kind of nice feeling and it's nice when people come up to you and like oh, you know i love the podcast and i bought this because of that and you know and now you know people are starting to kind of dealers and you know companies are starting to stand up and go oh man you know we'd really like to be involved and that's great because um especially and especially what i do now it's nice to kind of be involved in that side of dmi and kind of almost like product development in in some ways and kind of product testing and kind of helping 
you know people along it's it's brilliant yeah fantastic let's let's talk about that um when when did you start at boss and what's what's your role there it seems like you're doing heaps of different things really uh yeah well i actually started um probably a good time for this podcast i think i started exactly one year on tuesday okay great um so it's it's been it's been an entire year um, and it was one of those things i was talking about it with a friend yesterday who's just started um it was one of those jobs when i was like you read the job description you're like I, this makes no sense I have, you know, when these you read these job descriptions, uh-huh. like I don't even know what half the stuff is. Um, but yeah, it came um, from a friend, uh, the guy I work with, uh, Jamie Dore. Uh, I've known him for years. Once again, through the industry, um, okay. and he just put this this job up. This he was like, oh, we're looking for someone, and I read the job description. But I think I actually really just read the first line, which was like. Um, assistant product manager, boss products, and it was just like you know big knowledge of boss pedals and this and i just private messaged him on facebook and said i want to apply like how do i get this job basically um and he went oh you know it's pretty stressful and this that and i was like look just get me in for an interview and it went on for kind of months i handed in my cv um and it kind of went back and forth for ages and then i just went in for an interview and he was just like look we need you to i just i just need someone to help me there's so much to do you know i don't really want to like interview anyone else just you know if you promise not to quit and you promise to just work really hard it's going to be a good laugh so i sort of said yep great handed in my notice and um you know started a year ago sat down on the first day and he's like so you know what do we do and he's like well we're basically gonna make sure that people buy boss products um and there's been no solid job description (laughs) like since then really it's um it's kind of learning on on your feet the whole time and always doing something different and always being involved in something different um but i suppose the kind of easy description would be that i am a yeah product sale a product manager marketing manager for for boss for europe um which also includes russia and south africa um so it's basically making sure that we still fly the the flag high for, for for boss across those those countries um but more recently been involved in a lot of global marketing and kind of product launch videos and more recently kind of you know products development to a kind of minor extent um and working a lot with um the japanese kind of headquarters um and yeah getting to see products from kind of phase one development all the way through to kind of hitting the stores so the products that have come out recently that I've kind of had a, a hand in or help or, you know, been helping develop the kind of marketing for months. It's amazing to see people actually buying it and going, this product's great. Um, and I, and I get a great sense from that. And I think the engineers themselves, like I can't imagine the kind of feeling that they, they must get. I mean, yeah, the guy yeah. that, um, the engineer that developed the, um, the MS three that came out recently. Yeah. Um, he is, a bit older than me i think i think he's kind of maybe like in his mid 30s he's worked for boss for a, a little while um this was his that was his first um head products where he was the head engineer yeah um and it's been so well received and he's just like you know thanks very much for all your help like, it's been amazing the, the response we've had has been brilliant and i think he's really chuffed to see that so many people are like buying this product that he's basically like developed from the, the ground up yeah that's it's just like i mean 
amazing really that's brilliant i'm really um, interested actually when you mentioned that you, you you talked about you know seeing um seeing a project from phase one all the way through and um can we talk about the ms3 a little because i know you've had you've been involved yeah. in different stages of that i guess if, if anyone's not familiar it's uh um, what's well, a, a loop switching device but it's also got inbuilt effects and just a ton of different routing options and um yeah you could probably describe it kind way better than I, but... I i suppose an all-in-one kind of portable rig the, the kind of initial design idea was creating a new you know boss have always done like world first so i think the idea behind this was creating something that was like a, you know a new concept um, you know, as, as they kind of um, tagged it as an integrated pedal board solution. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, people have kind of taken that a step further and want to use it in kind of ridiculous ways, you know, and kind of like really expand their kind of already kind of big pedal boards. Right. Um, but the kind of initial concept was actually you can take these big pedal boards, reduce it right down to its core elements uh, and just have a really small portable effects rig. Mm-hmm. Um because you know i remember when i was building pedal boards when i when i was kind of getting into guitar and buying more pedals is i wanted one of every type you know i wanted a phaser a chorus and a flanger yeah. a delay and a reverb you know every type of distortion or overdrive and you know that's great but sometimes you just don't you don't need all that you don't want to buy a flanger for one song you don't want to buy a phaser for a single riff yeah, or you know sure. you don't want a chorus just to play come as you are you kind of just yeah. want <laughs> one thing that does uh, kind of bit of everything yeah um and that's really where that comes in it's you know your core eff- every core effect you could want is in there but you've still got three loops that add in your your favorite pedals you don't have to limit yourself to just boss products if you don't if you've got a particular fuzz that you like you can yeah. you can add it in but you can add it in with the, the, the amazing boss effects that are, that are already in there yeah cool so when does this start because as as you and i are speaking this is where it's sort of the at the end of july 2017 it's been out i don't know yeah. for about a month or so how how far back um so when does the ms3 start um i saw the initial concept in october last year okay um and it was a cardboard cutout so it already been wow. basically designed at okay. that point yeah um so i'm assuming they'd worked on it um for maybe a few months prior to that and and the the core concept was there um but they are very meticulous about design how things look um kind of 3d drawings and renders um and they basically already rendered it and had it printed onto a 3d cardboard model um so i actually got to hold it in effect in um in october last year okay Uh, um and it was the one apart from the uh, md and rv is the product that i was probably most excited about um because i also saw really rough ideas of those last year as well um and i was just like i can't wait for these to come out and it's like holding that secret for kind of uh you know eight months or, yeah, or whatever wow. yeah six or seven months you know and, and kind of all these developments and kind of all these people online for six months going i really need something that does this or i need something that does that and it's like i've got a solution for you but i can't <laughs> tell you about it you know and i can't even say that you know i can't even say there's something coming or anything like that you know it's all very yeah, sure. kind of closed off and it's the, the day it's announced is, is the day it's announced basically yeah um but yeah, so October last year. So okay. these products are a long time in the works. They're not um, things that are kind of like 
stuck together like everything kind of starts with a, a seed of an idea and it's and it's built out from from that yeah and where was where where is this product designed and where where does all the testing happen so you're obviously in europe the head office is in japan yeah um yeah, yeah. where does all this stuff happen so um hamamatsu um which is the a, a kind of i don't know if it's a prefecture of japan i think it's actually just a city in a prefecture of japan um and there's a place called miyakoda and that's where the headquarters um has been for boss for a number of years now um boss has their own kind of like area their own section uh with a floor of engineers of maybe like 40 or 50 engineers okay um and everything is built designed tested um you know over and over and over again all in-house all on all on that site the final mass production um unless it is a made in japan item um is done you know in uh, malaysia or or um thailand uh, taiwan or uh, mm-hmm. china depending on the product yeah. um but everything development wise testing wise um you know all the phases of kind of putting it together it's all done by engineers in, in japan just the way it has been done since 1976 basically yeah. um and it's amazing to see because that you know they're not they're, they're building the circuit boards they're testing everything they're putting the breadboards together they're writing the code um you know they're getting someone to design the box you know the, the manufacturing and the boxes the boxes are being made they're being sent over um it's all a very kind of this amazing kind of melting pot of you know product development and uh, i was like enough to spend you know kind of a couple hours walking around it and um you know it'd be nice to spend to see it a bit in a bit more detail at some point but yeah it's an amazing kind of workspace because a lot of the engineers have worked for boss for maybe 35 years yeah wow. you know um those kind of engineers well, yeah yoshi kagami who is the, the boss president started working for boss or started working for roland in 1978 okay um so you know the, the company started in 1974, um, so you know he's worked there for nearly its entire its entire life. Wow, it's incredible. Yeah. So the um, so you mentioned the MD500 and the RV as well. So what's so what's your involvement in those mm-hmm. products? And and I guess the MS3. What um, what specifically did you get to get your hands dirty with that? Um, so I actually had. Um, cool thing with the md and the rv is i actually had the software before the product itself was finalized okay um so during um development um so we, we got asked to do the product launch video uh, way back in uh, february um so it takes a little while to kind of plan these videos exactly what we want there's a lot of back and forth uh, making sure everything gets signed off um you know storyboarding it and working out what's going to be best for the kind of consumer that's going to be after that particular product and um we needed to one we needed to get pedal boards built because we really wanted to do like a kind of real kind of nice gear video that kind of had some cool pedal boards on it yeah and you know had um all the pedals on it and it looked really nice on camera and we wanted someone just playing it and we just wanted to show off the pedals. so i was like right we need some pedal boards built and um there was um a, a minor delay in getting the the final product 
Um, so they were like, oh, we've actually got the, the, the kind of beta software. So um, we'll send you the software and, um, you know, you can kind of mess around with it from there. And um, so I had that. Then they sent the pedals over. We got the pedal boards built. Uh, we tested some of the sounds. The initial one I had had no presets on it. Um, and it's, it was just kind of they sent me the top panel. So when the top panels were ready, we had some top panels to put on a like a DD500 so we could see what it looked like. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just it was just a kind of cool um, sort of process, you know, asking, oh, do these sound good? Does, you know, does this sound good? Um, is there anything you suggest we add um, to the kind of final stage? But by the time I'd got it, I was like, you know, the sounds in it was so good. Um, and they were like, oh, yeah, we've got this. We've developed this new simultaneous mode. Um, the DD500 had it. We're kind of thinking of some new options. And, you know, when I sort of started using it, I actually took the original prototypes to a friend's studio and we were kind of messing around with it and we were messing around with the stereo mode and i was like this thing is like i think that's what's always been nice about bosses that they've kind of done something that's a bit like different and they've always gone okay well how can we like be one step ahead of maybe what someone else is doing and that simultaneous mode that allows you to run two effects at once but either in mono or in stereo so mm -hmm. you could have a phaser and a vibrato in two separate speakers i was like this is amazing because you can start chaining these pedals together and actually like send completely different signal chains out um so it's kind of you know in the early stages it's like maybe just suggesting an idea um way back in october and they were saying about the rv i was like oh wouldn't it be great if um it had the space echo on it and uh that then that ended up coming out on it and then they were like we were like oh it's great there's a delay on there but it'd be nice if there was some way you could link the dd500 to the rv and they were like well we could put delay on every patch um and then obviously they developed that so that every reverb algorithm on the rv500 has has a delay on it okay um cool. so it's, it's you know it's, and it's kind of like minor suggestions it's like that we did the katana mini um recently and they sent me the original the prototype was the only one um and they said can you, you know, come from america they'd send it to america they'd send it to us can you test it can you let us know what you think and i was like oh you know i think we should change this and maybe change the frequency response here this is what i think of this um and then when we got the next version through it, it had changed um and they kind of said right we've tweaked this and this and it's and it's nice to kind of actually know that your word is kind of having an, an effect on these products at the same time um but it, it does vary some things come to us like almost finalized some things come to us in like really early planning stages like you know what your what's your opinion you know what do you think we should do um but being in launch uh, involved in the product launch means that we generally get stuff quite early so we'll actually get prototypes um which are like not ready to be filmed or to be seen because there might be minor cosmetic changes or sound changes mm -hmm like tweaks constantly happen and then from that we end up getting we get pre-productions um so like stuff that's basically final but it's not actually part of the mass production run um which is nice because in my office i've got like serial number one of the boss bd2 w was um you know was i've got um loads of the early ce1s wow, awesome. i've got like serial i've got ce2 serial number z zero 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 um so that's kind of cool like for me yeah. being a massive boss fan like having these kind of cool pedals like oh man this is like you know it when we did um we did a video in january for the 40th anniversary of the boss compact and we did this kind of rotating camera thing where we wanted all of the compacts that we'd ever done and they sent us them all from the museum 
and everything from the museum is basically the first one the first prototype and yeah we got you know we got a dd2 and it was the original dd2 the first the first one and i was like this was the first ever digital delay pedal you know this actual compact then became the final design for what was then mass produced which then like completely changed the way that people think about delay because wow, a digital delay is a compact pedal hadn't actually existed at that point that's so right Only when you hold analogs, small pieces, yeah. yeah so you know um what's crazy about that is that yoshi kagami who's now the boss president mm-hmm. um he actually developed the sde 3000 which was one of the last oh, okay. kind of real high-end rack yeah the rack mount ones um and then they kind of fed that down into compacts um because i didn't realize until the other day the rv2 was the first ever digital uh reverb compact okay um and it's the only boss pedal uh that actually like compact pedal that came with its own power supply it was required so much power it wouldn't actually run on a battery okay so they had to include a <laughs> you know a psa with it yeah um and it's a, it's i think that's always been the nice thing and especially for me in the last year they're always trying to think forward um and that's why the box 40 the 40th anniversary was a great thing for me because it was the first time that we kind of gone you know we've actually reissued something and we talked about it on guitar nerds recently about when we first met the the boss guys and they were like it's not the japanese way to kind of ever look back you know don't want to ever reissue anything we always want to look forward so for us it's kind of real you know rarity for us to do this and if we're going to do it we're going to do it properly so when you say when you say the 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 boss 40 that's the 40th anniversary of the compacts and is that that the set with the um it's got the spectrum and the was it the the phaser and the the overdrive is that the the traffic light set? i think they call it yeah um which um funny enough when i was out in japan last year they they were talking about um doing a, a reissue um but just one of them and i said oh okay. you know, wouldn't it be great if we did a, all three you know um when we did like a box set. i mean amazing for kind of the company it's so good to celebrate the kind of history i know some collectors that we you know be massively into this i think it would be great you know we keep uh-huh. the numbers sort of really limited and um sort of yoshi sort of turns to the engineer and so like, oh, you know do you think it can be done and they went well yeah i guess <laughs> and um <laughs> And then, you know, we kind of came back to the UK and then months, you know, weeks, months later, and then this, the kind of more ideas started flying out. And, and then, you know, here we are in July with a, with a fully formed, wow. you know, released product. So, you know, for me, going from buying that boss book to kind of seeing that boss set, you know, I could have dropped the mic and gone, do you know what, I've, done, <laughs> I've kind of like hit my peak. I've kind of, I never ever thought I would have done that, you know, ever been involved in the company yeah, that well, I bought yeah. the book for. And then yeah. 10 years later ended up, uh, you know, having a, a small, very small hand in the in the kind of development of a kind of historic product. Because yeah, wow. There's one thing I can't deny is that the engineers at Boss are just amazing people. Um, you know, they've developed technology and sounds that are used the world over um and they're always looking to do something different you know they're always there when i ever when i spoke to them i said what's your favorite compact and the, their favorite compact is always the last one they developed okay because okay, they're well. like we did different did something we did something new yeah right. um you know i 
I've spoke to one of the guys and I said, oh, what was your favorite compact? And he said, I really liked the ST2, which was the power stack, um, which did like a, a kind of Marshall and a, and a high gain amp. And it was uh-huh, kind of had this yeah. like very gain control on it. And I was like, oh, you know, what other pedals do you work on? And he's like, you know, I did like slow gear and, you know, I helped with DS1 and DS2. And I'm like, well, DS1 is kind of legendary. And he went, yeah, but the technology is sort of like very old. You know, we've always, we've made it for, 39 years <laughs> and he's like but st2 is new it's got new, all this new stuff in it so they have a kind of and it's amazing really because they have a slightly different perspective to how guitar players view things where we always want we are you're either a guitar player that wants something really old you know you want to go back to the yeah. kind of 50s les pauls and 60s strats or you want pedals and you want pedals that do something you know that do something similar that give you all those old tones yeah yeah definitely the, um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing, really, because they were like, well, the technology sort of old. We want to do something different. Not that they say they don't like it, but they always kind of want to move move forward, which I think is a, a great view to have, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so progressive. They've been at the forefront for that for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's amazing they're still going with that that kind of philosophy. Yeah. Interesting you mentioned the DS1. I've, um, I've mentioned this on this show before, but my very first guitar pedal was a uh, was a secondhand Boss DS one that I bought in nineteen eighty six, I think. It was obviously a made in Japan one then, and um, yeah, I loved that pedal. I could not believe it. I could not believe what it did. <laughs> so well, exciting. I mean, things that sort of didn't exist at that that point. You know, I was talking yeah. to um, Lee Anderton about the OD one and uh, uh-huh. Peter Nori about about it, and I was saying, but you know, before the OD one overdrive pedals didn't exist i mean you take overdrive pedals granted now yeah but uh they didn't exist and i mean a lot happened at the same time or around a similar sort of time but the od1 was the first one it was the pedal that coined that term and a lot of other classic overdrives we know now came slightly after it yes and you know the od1 no one really heard that but the idea was that they were like well most people using these big loud marshall amps but maybe can't turn it up as loud you know what can we do to kind of push the the front end uh-huh. um and the amazing thing is um i remember hearing that part of the reason you always see boss pedals and you always see the controls facing straight up it's not necessarily just for kind of cosmetics but it's actually that boss pedals are designed so that they're always easy to use but if you put all the controls at 12 you're going to get a good sound okay so the idea is, ah. you know, in most pedals, you can't tweak it. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't find those sweet spots, but it's like, no, if, you, if you're stuck, um, you can put everything at 12. And there's cool. a kind of set sound from there. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing, really, that some of these pedals, like you say, DS1, like something like that hadn't existed beforehand. So when most people went, oh, I can have it in a floor pedal, like, amazing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. We, and we, I suppose, we sort of so, especially like guitar players now you know young kids playing guitar it's you know there's so much out there but and even for us you know there were pedals then but you know when i talked to a few of my friends who are much older they were like at the time there was nothing you know you could buy a fuzz pedal you could buy a, a big muff um you know you could buy a, a fuzz face or whatever but they were expensive you couldn't really afford a big amp you know pedals just didn't exist so you know, that must have been a crazy time, especially the seventy, the late seventies when yeah, things started yeah, developing. And for sure, rack stuff started coming. Eighties, all the digital things. Um, there's just there's just so much of it, and so many Boss products. I'm I'm compiling a list at the moment 
and I think there's over maybe nearly 700 products that have had the boss name put to it wow. since 1977. That's incredible. Um, yeah, and that's not and that's not including all the technology that we developed that might have ended up in Roland products as well. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, it's a it's a kind of ridiculously rich history. Yeah. Um, it's nice to be a tiny, tiny part of that. Yeah, fantastic. I, I was trying to work out today, you know, sort of leading up to speaking with you, I was trying to think, has there ever been a time when I haven't owned some Bosky or I, ha I haven't had something Boss on my board? And I think, I don't think there has been any time since 1986. You know, I've sold stuff and, and moved stuff on. And in fact, I, my pedal board didn't have a Boss Compact on it for a couple of years, but I was using a Boss Volume pedal. And I got a, yeah. uh, I've got an SD one on my board now, and it was something comforting about having a Boss Compact back on the board that that I really loved. Yeah, I, I suppose it's funny, really, because you know we've sold um, I think nearly uh, fifteen million compacts now, um, and they're just everyone's got one. Everyone's got a story. Everyone I spoke to about what I do, everyone's like, oh, I remember my first boss pedal, or, you know, it's got some sort of story behind it. And I must say, I mean, I'm the same. I think I've always had a boss compact on my board uh -huh. at some point, whether it's a tune or whether it is, you know, an effect of, of some sort. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there going, oh, boss, you know, boss are rubbish or boss have had it, or, you know, why would you buy that when you can buy a Strymon or you can buy something else? And, you know, I'm totally open to kind of all other pedals and I've been into guitar pedals you know, for years, but I've always been a boss fanboy uh -huh. even before I got this job. Yeah. And, uh, and I just went, well, you know, nowadays it's like, why are so many people using boss compacts? Cause they work, they're reliable. Why are so many pros using them? Because they know they can buy one anywhere in the world from pretty much any music store. They know it's going to work and realistically, they probably know it's, they are really going to break. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of, that's part of the reason they stood the test of time is that they do have a great and classic sound. There's a lot of models in our product range now that have lasted an incredibly long time. I mean, the BD2 has been going for 26 years now. Wow. Um, you know, Metal Zone we've made since 1991. We've made the DD3 since 1988. Um, DS1 since 1978, you know, all these, even yeah, things like the wow. BF3 we've made for nearly 15 years now. Wow. Um, and it's, and I think that's, you know, the reason so many people use Boss pedals is that they, the sounds have become classic. They've always um, been relatively affordable and, and they're always really solid. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of stores, you know, you'd walk in and be like, well, buy Boss pedal, you know, it's going to work, you know, it's going to sound good and you know, it's, uh, it's probably not going to break on you. Nice. Hey, we've mentioned the, the traffic light reissue and um, the Boss DS1, mm. there was the, there's the, been the black uh, celebration uh, issue of that pedal. Is, is there anything else in the works to celebrate 40 years of Boss Compact pedals? There is something um, that I will mention here that's not... Um, we haven't officially announced it yet, but uh -huh. you'll um, hear a brief announcement of it here first. It's not a product, but me and my colleague are working on a pop-up um, museum, um, which will be in London in sometime in September, awesome. um, which will feature uh, a huge amount of um, boss history. So a few people have probably seen, um, if you're part of the Pedal Water Doom Facebook group, I've been posting pictures pictures of kind of ridiculous amounts of gear that have been turning up on my desk wow. um, from Fantastic. all over the world. 
so as part of the 40th celebration we are yeah basically celebrating with a huge um kind of boss museum um so there's more details to follow on that uh-huh. um real soon but um you kind of i suppose in a way heard it here first fantastic that's um, cool so keep an eye on the boss um the boss uh, facebook page um boss.info slash uh uk um but yeah more details follow but me and me and my colleague working super hard for the last kind of six months sort of rough planning and, and everything and it's all starting to come together so hopefully everyone will get to come down to london and check that out because um i'm excited to see it kind of all in all in one place cool sounds great Sounds incredible, man. I'd love to get to check that out. Now, you're moving to you Japan. I would have to fly. <laughs> I think it'll be yeah. worth it. Yeah. Um, hey, yeah, you're, you're, you're moving to, speaking of flying, you're heading off to Japan for a few months. What's, what's the story there? Yeah. Um, no, uh, no, once again, no official announcement yet because we haven't really talked about it on the guitar nerds um page but yeah i've been invited to go and work in japan hq wow. um uh, from september so um i will be doing a lot of marketing um and kind of doing what i do uh, in europe or for europe um but with the kind of amazing marketing team in uh, in hamatsu so i'll be working on the on the boss floor with uh, the entire boss team um, right up until Christmas. Wow, that sounds super cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, scary, yeah. Um, super scary. Um, I've not done a, a whole lot of traveling and kind of living by yourself in a, in a kind of whole new place. Yeah, um, sure. You know, and 12 hours away from, from home, you know, it's going to be kind of pretty full on, but, you know, the boss guys are great. They're so accommodating. The Japanese culture is incredible. The people are amazing. So uh, it should be hopefully a, a pretty amazing trip but there'll be more details to follow on that um you know i'm sure i'll make a, a full and official announcement at some point on the uh on the guitar notes group when uh, details are a bit more uh, solid uh-huh yeah cool awesome well, mate we should let you go but before i do there um i did i did post on a little group I'm involved with and, and as you are um, that I was going to yes. speak to you and see if anyone had any questions and Michael Rigby uh, asked this one if you if you needed Matt a travel rig I think he said that you could fit on a train trip for a gig what what would you put together right it's it's funny that he asked that because um, obviously with my impending um, trip um, I was like I can't be without guitar or, or playing for um for a, for a few months um and i was like well actually what works for me is i don't want to take a i can't take a big pedal board um it can't be too heavy so i thought well what can i do to kind of reduce it and i probably won't be able to play an amp you know the kind of apartments are quite small and you know i don't want to make a lot of noise so um i'm actually building a, a small travel board at the moment um courtesy of uh, custom pedal boards um chris ryan in the uk um he built one of the um ms three pedal boards for us um for the photo sh- or the video shoot that we did okay, uh, and yeah, he kindly cool. built me one with a bit of an extension for an expression pedal yeah so nice. i'm actually building a mini travel board that is smaller than a suitcase that fits an overhead um an overhead locker that's got a, an ms3 on it yeah uh, an expression pedal and then space for three 
compacts. Yeah. Um, but instead of the third compact uh, on the little spacer, but just above it, I'm actually going to put some sort of headphone amp. Um, okay. So I'll have the MS3, cool. a couple of compacts, and then uh, a small little headphone amp. Um, and I think, to be honest, that will do everything. There's so many, as we've you know, already mentioned, there's so many great effects, so many cool options in there. Yeah. It's just going to be fun to mess around with. Um, and good. I'll probably also end up taking my uh, Roland Quad Capture, which is the interface I've used for ages, yeah. and my laptop. I'm actually probably just playing straight into to Ableton with just some sort of like um, you know cab model or amp model, or just using a headphone amp and, and going straight in. Sounds good, man. Now, what um, I was going to ask you, what are your favourite? What's your favourite compact if you can commit to one? Given you've got space for two on this board, what what do you reckon you'd pop um, on there? Well, I think the pedal that I've always the the Boss Compact that I've always come back to um, for a number of years now, which I think is always just solid, and I think it always sounds great. And I always struggle with drive pedals, so I'd actually probably say it's a DD3 because I've had a few. Uh, I've got a couple now, mm-hmm. and my kind of um, made in Japan sort of late eighties DD three, nice. um, because it just sounds incredible every time. Just you know, few repeats, low level, it just sounds great. Yeah. Uh, and of a, and a, another one, if I had to have one on there, just because the sound is so lush, is the the DC two dimension chorus, which is a pedal I'd lusted after for years since oh, reading yeah, the Boss yeah. book, and then finally bought one. Um, and I don't think it'll ever leave my pedal board. It's just an amazing chorus pedal. Is that the one with the buttons, the four buttons? The four buttons, yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah, ama- amazing. Such a cool, cool bit of kit. And it, that in, in itself was actually the first ever dual BBD chip chorus pedal. Okay. So it's the first ever like dual circuit chorus pedal. Because um, I think there's actually two chorus pedals in there that run uh simultaneously nice nice i had a um yeah i had the three the the dc3 um, ah yeah that actually had two names as well the digital space d and the dimension chorus i ah, think or dimension yeah. space d mine was mine they was a dimension the name at some point in the... yeah i think tim green was telling me um uh was the space one was released in japan or something only um yeah, quite potentially. He knows way more than me. Yeah, he's on to it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Um, Very cool. But yeah, that, that actually had two names. In it. And it's been interesting kind of gathering all the compacts to kind of look at all the different sort of variations in names and, and stuff like that as well. So kind of trying to hunt down a few of those. It's been really nice. Yeah, cool. All right. Hey, Matt, it's been so good talking to you from one boss oh, fanboy. Thanks very much for letting me um, tell the story. Ah, good to hear it. Absolutely good to hear it. And um, yeah, and all the best for Japan and, and for the Pop-Up Museum and all the all the good stuff you've got ahead yeah. of you. More details to follow. Um, you know, obviously, you know, sort of shameless plug, obviously the Guitar Nerds podcast has been yes. great coming on here. So thanks very much for that. But obviously uh, there'll be more details to follow on the podcast and, and the Guitar Nerds Facebook group uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. I will keep listening. Cool. Thanks very much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. All right. There you go, Matt Knight. And that Boss Pop-Up Museum looks amazing. If you follow um, Boss Europe's Instagram, Matt's been posting some of the the vintage pieces that have been turning up. They're going to 
um, exhibit at this museum and it looks absolutely incredible and there's some really cool gigs and things going on. Uh, our friend Joe Branton from Polymath, uh, his band will be playing at one of the events. Um, the guys from That Pedal Show, uh, including Daniel Steinhardt, who we interviewed uh, last year, will be there as well. So it looks like a fantastic event. All right, now don't go anywhere and make sure you are subscribed to us because next week in the show we uh, play our conversation with Dweezil Zappa. It was awesome to get the opportunity to speak with Dweezil and it was a very cool conversation. So make sure you're tuned in for that. If you're not subscribed yet, this is the time to do it. We are on iTunes, um, Stitcher Radio and iHeart Radio and uh, lots of other podcatcher device things. So make sure you're getting the episode sent to you and uh, you'll catch Dweezil and, and all the other good stuff coming up on the Guitar Speak podcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram if you want to follow us there. All right, thank you so much for joining me. My name's Matt Wakeling, and I'll catch you next time on the Guitar Speak podcast. Bye now.